0: of pain. That's where we've been for the last few weeks, and we're going to be there for the rest of this month. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is the passage today, so get your word out and open it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to be picking it up in verse 7. Father God, thank you that we believe that the question on that video, is there really an upside to the downside of life, that the question is yes, but only if you're in the midst of our pain and we believe that you are there. So we pray that you would teach us, Father, we all hurt at times, everybody hurts, but we pray you would teach us about what you want to do to help redeem that pain, uh, to bring good from that pain, even pain that you hate. So we ask you to teach us from your word in Christ's name, amen. A few years ago I uh, was teaching on this subject and I received a letter, let me just read part of it to you came from a lady named Ida Johnson. Ida was an older lady in the church who was known for her sense of joy. I didn't know anything about Ida's past until she wrote me this. Dear Pastor Dale, I'm writing this letter because your sermons on pain have just covered my life for the last 68 years. She says, you know, I didn't always live in California, but I moved here from Portsmouth, Ohio. But before I moved to California... When I was 20 years old, I was in a car accident, and that was now 68 years ago. I had quit going to church altogether. I had turned away from God. And one Sunday night, when I would normally have been in church, my boyfriend and I had an accident. I was the only one hurt, but my jaws and my shoulder were broken. They rushed me to Columbus, Ohio, to the university hospital. They found out that they would have to amputate my leg four inches from my hip. They said that I would probably not live. But God had a different plan. I recovered and later went to college, even though it required walking up 14 steps every time I went to class, with my wooden artificial limb tied around my waist. you got to remember that this was happening to Ida in the 1930s. This predates a lot of the more sophisticated ambulatory stuff today. Walking up 14 steps every day, I went to class with my wooden limb tied around my waist. Well, later things got better. I got married. By age 37, I found myself owning my home, had a great husband and two lovely children. And then at age 37, God took my husband, leaving me with children ages 4 and 5 to raise alone. Why? Why was such a question? She says, but now, Dale, fast forward. I will soon be turning 88. And through it all, prayer and work has kept us, provided for us. I've paid my tithes and offerings to the Lord. No one has ever given us a dime. God has always provided for us. I tell all young people that I meet to give God his part and draw close to him, no matter what happens in your life. I now live alone, drive myself to church every Sunday morning, and on Wednesday night to my group. The letter goes on to say that in spite of her pain, life is a joy. And it raises the question, you know, when I read a letter like that and you meet a person like that, person who's lived through pain and with pain for over 68 years of her life and she's not bitter she's not upset with God she's not upset with life she's not complaining she has I mean this I I wish you would have met her before she died she was just a joyful person she lived very simply she didn't have much by the world standards She had more joy than I've seen on the faces and in the lives of a lot of people that seem to have everything together. So it raises the question, you know, it's been said that pain in your life will either make you bitter or it will make you better. And what we're going to explore today and for the next three or four weeks are some things that God wants us to understand that if you want your pain to make you better instead of bitter, then these are the lessons we need to learn. Today, we're going to listen to a story about pain in the life of not Ida, but the Apostle Paul, his personal journey with pain. So listen to it first, and then we're going to unpack it together from God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, pick it up in verse 7. Paul says, Because of surpassing greatness of revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan. The word messenger literally is angelos. It could be angel or it's like a a messenger, an angel or messenger from Satan, however, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, before we go any further, let me give you the context of verse seven. Later on this week, back up and read verses one to six and you'll find out what Paul's talking about. Paul had been explaining his role as an apostle who was unlocking the gospel of Christ to the Gentile world around the Mediterranean. Paul realized he had been blessed with some special revelations from God. He goes all the way back to his conversion in Acts chapter 8 and 9. You read his conversion. He's a persecutor of the church. This guy is on the move to try to snuff out this false religion called Christianity. And Jesus Christ literally appears to him and speaks to him on this road to Damascus kind of supernatural experience. So right from his conversion, he experienced some things that you and I probably never will experience. He later on says in verses one through six that there was a period in his time as a new believer that he found himself. And he says, I wasn't even sure if I was in my body or out of my body. All I know is I was in paradise. I was in the presence of God. I was hearing messages and information that other people don't hear. And he had some type of like out-of-body experience. And it, it's hard to explain exactly what it was because the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians 1 to 6 says, I don't even know what was going on. All I know is I know what I heard from God. And, and, and it was incredible. It may have been part of the basis of his ability to, under inspiration, record Romans and Ephesians and Colossians and Galatians and, you know, 1st, 2nd Timothy and all these books of the New Testament. I mean, you're talking about a guy who came to a miraculous conversion and then following that had miraculous revelations from God and was the source of the majority of the New Testament. This is the man that God used in an incredible way as the apostle to the to the to the non-Jewish or Gentile world. You and I, and many would say that the Apostle Paul was the second, next to Jesus himself, was the second most significant person in the history of Christianity. Well, Paul understood that. And he says in verse 7, he says, Hey, look, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I've received, for this reason, verse 7, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me and to keep me from exalting myself or becoming prideful. Now, what was Paul so concerned about? Let me pull up here right here for a minute. What he was concerned about, I think, was what I kind of call, I've kind of given it a name, the SPP syndrome or the success builds pride builds pain syndrome. And here's what I mean by it. I want to draw a little diagram and show you how this works, at least in my life and I think in in people in general. It starts with something good, not bad, that that you get into trouble in life, not because you've been cursed, but blessed. You have some degree of success in life. It could be your career, your spiritual life, your family life, whatever. Everything's working and you're experiencing blessing from God. Now, when that happens, there's one of two ways that every person goes. They either take the credit and they say, OK, this was my thing or it's a God thing. You know, is, are these achievements by me because Man, you know, I kinda got my act together. I'm a, I'm a better Christian than everybody else, or, or, or I'm more blessed, or, you know, but, you know, in other words, you take the credit, or you say, you know something, God has been very kind to me, and you see it as a gift of His grace. Depending on which way you go in that divide, then it moves you to either a prideful attitude on this hand, or a, or a praise-filled attitude on this hand. Because if, you know, if it's my thing, then, hey, wow, isn't God lucky to have me on His team? You know what I mean? I'm glad He drafted me on draft day. You know, I'm glad I was a high draft pick for God's team. Or if it's a God thing, then then it moves me to have an attitude of I should stop and praise God. I should stop and and give to God and serve God and, and, and see that he is the source of my blessing. Now, depending on which way you go on that leads to not just a reaction, it affects your relationship with God. If it's a praise thing, it draws you closer to God. If it's a pride thing, you you drift away from God. And that affects my lifestyle. If I'm drawn closer to God, I'm going to live in more obedient dependence. If not, I'm going to live in more sinful independence from God. And you see it happen all the time. That usually it's in the life of the Christian who who everything seems to be working, that the temptation is to become increasingly independent of God. Stop reading his word. Stop spending time around other Christians. Stop making sure you're here for worship, ready to roll on Sundays. You know, those things that nurture your spiritual life. Because, hey, if everything's working, then who needs God? So, you know, you can see where pride leads to drifting, leads to sin, whereas Praise leads to drawing closer to God and obedient dependence on him. In result, the one is self-destruction. You begin doing stupid stuff that destroys yourself or it brings on the discipline of God. The other is God is able to continue to bless and to strengthen you as you put your dependence on him. Now, I think this is a scenario that Paul was scared of because he said, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation god needed to keep me humble now how does god keep us humble how does he get our attention so we don't go off and destroy ourselves by walking away from him and the key really is this idea of pain read an interesting uh letter that was written to me um a few years ago by a a gal who works in nursing and her specialty is wound care and she wrote this to me about pain she said pastor dale She said, thank you for opening this difficult door and helping us look inside of the most feared part of life, that is pain. One aspect of pain that's often overlooked is the value of pain. As a wound care nurse, I face the enemy of physical pain every day I go to work. But there is a real risk also for people who, for one reason or another, are unable to feel pain. These are the people who step on a needle and have it fester inside their foot, never realizing there's a problem until significant infection begins to infect the whole body. These are the people who have diseases like Hansen's disease or leprosy, who do not notice that they've cut off their finger while slicing carrots. These are people with significant neuropathies who can walk barefoot through a dark area on the beach and still not feel the hot fire pit. That they just stepped in while their flesh is burning. Pain and the ability to feel pain is a gift from God. It is the first warning of impending peril. I like that. It's the first warning sign of impending peril. In other words, don't go there. Stop what you're doing. Philip Yancey is one of my favorite authors on this whole subject. If you've not read his books, I highly recommend you read everything he's written. Uh, His best would be the oldest book that I read back in college was a book called Where is God When It Hurts? Still a classic little paperback. A little more deeper treatment of the subject is called Disappointment with God. About why is it that we get disappointed with God? Why does God behave in such a way that a lot of times we're disappointed in him? What's he up to? Two great books from Where is God When It Hurts? He has a fascinating story where he reports on a study of leprosy done by a doctor brand in India who specialized in the study of of how leprosy destroys people. And basically, let me give you the highlights. Brand basically was one of the first to discover that leprosy does most of its damage, not directly, but by causing an anesthetic effect where the person with it doesn't feel pain, and therefore they end up inflicting uh, hurt on themselves. Listen to this. He tells a story. He says, patients in the hospitals in India would work all day gripping a shovel that had a protruding nail or extinguish a burning stick with their bare hands or walk on splintered glass and never even know it. Watching them, Dr. Bram began formulating his radical theory that Hansen's disease was chiefly anesthetic and, not, and only indirectly the destroyer of the flesh. On one occasion, he went to open the door of a little storeroom. Um, now listen to this. But it had a rusty padlock that would not budge. He put the key in, couldn't turn it. One of his patients, an undersized, malnourished 10-year-old child, approached, took the key and said, let me try, doctor, gave him the key, and as he reached for the key, he stuck it in the padlock, and with a quick jerk of his hand, he turned the key in the lock, and it popped open. The doctor was dumbfounded. How could this weak little youngster out-exert him? Then his eyes caught the telltale clue as he saw a drop of blood on the floor beneath the lock. Examining the boy's fingers, the doctor discovered that in the act of turning the key, the little boy had gashed his finger wide open to the bone. Skin, fat, and joint fully exposed, yet the boy was completely unaware of it. To him, the sensation of cutting his finger to the bone was no different than picking up a stone or turning a coin in his pocket. You see, if we don't have the gift of pain. We can do the same thing spiritually. We can do the same thing in terms of our relationships, our marriages, our families, our lives. That a lot of times God allows us to experience pain to get our attention before we do something even worse to ourselves. So how does this work? Let's look at the solution. If the problem is pride, that's verse 7. If the problem is pride then the solution is humility. It's the gift of pain keeping us humble. It's what Paul calls the thorn in the flesh. So pick it back up with me in verse 8. He says, Considering this, that is, considering this thorn in my flesh, Paul says, I implored the Lord. It means to beg. I begged God. Okay, I, I, I'm tired of this. I want it out of here, whatever this storm in the flesh is. I begged God. I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am... Content, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions or difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, the solution is the gift of pain, the thorn in the flesh. What is it? Let me give you my definition and then I'll unpack the reason. Okay? Here's what I mean. When you think of a thorn in the flesh, don't just think physical. I think in the passage, what we see is this. The definition is this. The thorn in the flesh is any ongoing source of pain or problem outside of my control. In other words, it's not a pain or problem that I caused by my own sin. It's out of my control. I can't control it. God can control it. But God allows it for some reason, and it's there, and it doesn't go away. It's an ongoing source of pain or problem outside of my control. When you study this passage, you realize that it doesn't have to be literally interpreted as a thorn. In fact, uh, the word for thorn in Greek, when you study it in that language, is actually a broader word. It can be translated thorn. It can also be translated stake, like a tent stake that you drive in the ground. So this could literally be translated everything from a thorn in the flesh to a stake through my flesh. You know, and, and there's a lot of interesting symbolism either way. Uh, you know, what was Paul's specific thorn? I think there's two main options from the text and from Paul's life. And they're, they're pretty easy, so let me just give them to you. Number one is it could have been a physical affliction. affliction. We know the Apostle Paul suffered these. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, I'll give you a couple of verses, just write them down because I want to keep your, your eyes on 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, Paul says this in Galatians 4:13. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. There was some bodily problem going on with Paul. Two verses later, he says this. For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So now what's that imply? It implies that the Apostle Paul had some type of pretty serious eye problem. Some type of perhaps oncoming uh, blindness. Uh, it's been supposed maybe he had a problem with cataracts or something that that he was increasingly having difficulty seeing. And, and and people saw how painful it was for him to deal with that. And they would have loved to just give him new eyes, but they couldn't do that. So we don't know if it was Paul's blindness or some other physical affliction. Some believe he had kind of a uh, kind of a, a bit of a lame, a little bit of a lame, not a lame guy like me. I'm lame. But, you know, you know but, but a physical lameness. I, I don't know. But the reality is it could have been physical. But the second thing, and I probably tip toward this view myself, uh, is a view that I first read by uh, John MacArthur, actually, to give credit, where when he studied the context of these terms, Paul may very well be talking about opponents or critics. Uh, Paul was constantly hounded by people that didn't like him. They followed him from city to city even. For example, in Acts 14, he writes this. He says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the multitudes, uh, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Uh, and, and every time Paul would go to a new city, there were these, uh, these people who would follow him from town to town. They lied about him. They accused him falsely of all kinds of stuff. We know from First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, for example, that Paul says, look, when I came to you, I didn't I didn't lie to you. I told you the truth. I didn't do it just to please people. I didn't do it just for money. You know, and, and these were all the things he was being accused of. So here's this guy trying to follow Jesus Christ. He knows he's pure of heart, not perfect, but he knows his motives are pure. He knows his message is pure, but people keep attacking him and he never could seem to get rid of them. You know, he's not alone in that, by the way, um, Interesting little quote. How many people heard of Charles Spurgeon? You're Charles Spurgeon? Famous, uh, famous pastor, author, theologian. Uh, you know, Spurgeon is one of the most respected, uh, theologians probably in church history. But what you don't know about Spurgeon is when he was younger, there was a point at which that he was a part of a, of a denominational group in England and, and that group, there was a, 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 a movement to to basically discredit him and kick him out. So they took a vote at their gathering, and they voted 3,000 to 2 to remove him. Now, that's not a very good vote. Okay? What makes it even more painful for Spurgeon is the guy who led the movement to, to oust him was his brother, who was his assistant pastor. So, you know, it's kind of like Ryan doesn't like Dale. So Ryan starts attacking Dale. Ryan takes a vote. It comes out, you know, 500 to 2. You know, that's not a very good vote to have go down, especially if you know in your heart of hearts you're, you're innocent. See, that's the Apostle Paul. That's life. Sometimes it's the people in our lives who are the thorns in the flesh. So I really think the thorn in the flesh phrase, whether it's physical affliction or his critics, I mean, when you think of the, the metaphor, uh, I think it's really being used more as a metaphor in this passage. And you could really go either way on what Paul's main thought was when he, when he wrote this. You know, Because a thorn in the flesh is what? It's that little irritant under the skin that you can't get rid of, and it just inflames your finger, and if it, touches it, it hurts if you even touch it, but you can't get it out, and you're stuck with it. So that's why I say the best definition is that ongoing, any ongoing source of pain or problem. You say, well, doesn't it have to just be whatever Paul was dealing with? Well, let me let me broaden your thinking a little more on it, because Paul then goes to talk about not just physical affliction or people. But then look at verse verse 10 again with me. He says, therefore, I'm content. I'm well content to put up with. Weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I experience the strength that God can provide. That list is a fascinating list. Weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. The first two are probably the two that Paul experienced the most. In fact, the Greek word for weakness here is a word that sometimes is translated disease or infirmities. So it probably is a reference to physical limitations or diseases, insults, those verbal attacks that are not deserved. It's the critical person that seems to have it in for you. It's the person that you live near or work with or sometimes live with. Who just seems to never be able to be pleased. Okay, you live with that criticism. It's distresses. But then he adds new ones. He says, "I'm okay with the distresses in my life. A distress, the the, the the Greek word here is a word that refers to the necessities of life. So a distress, the idea is, the implication at least would be this is when you have an unmet necessity. It's an unmet need that it, that is a crisis. You know, I gotta have this God, and it's just not coming through. Could be a financial need, could be a need for a relationship, could be a need." for whatever it is but it's something you need and you pray and it just doesn't happen persecutions that's suffering for your faith at times there are people in this world who still to this day will lose their life a limb or even uh, a career whatever they can be they can be martyred for their faith in many parts of this world Indonesia China India other places Pakistan it happens Now, fortunately, most of us are not going to experience that type of persecution, but there are times and I think there'll be more times in the future when you will. If you stand for what you believe as a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll find yourself on the out. It's persecution for faith. Difficulties. Another interesting term could be translated distress or calamities. But again, when you study it uh, in the Greek, it kind of adds some color to the word. It's a word that. Uh, the, the root of the word kind of means to be boxed in. Can you picture that? You know, it means to, uh, to be in a narrow place, if you translated it real literally. So it's kind of like being caught between a rock and a hard place. Now, yeah, that's the English version of this. I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Okay, I got nowhere to go. I'm stuck in this situation and it is not changing. And the reason I wanted to unpack these terms was to broaden your thinking, because it's easy to think, well, you know something? I hope I don't have a thorn in the flesh someday. Here's my deal. What Paul is really teaching is we all have thorns in the flesh. If you don't have something on this list, would you talk to me after church? I'd like to know what kind of blessed life you have and what your secret is. Because I think I could line up something on every level of these. This is life. So the question of the morning that we want to end with is this. How do I respond to these thorns that God allows us to experience that do not seem to go away? What is the response that makes us better instead of bitter? Here it is. Four quick lessons from the text itself. Number one, do what Paul did. Ask God to remove it. See, I love this. I love the fact it's okay to say, I don't like this. God, please take this away. Okay? You can, it's okay to not like pain. God doesn't expect you to be so spiritually mature that you embrace pain and say, wow, you know, bring it on. Okay? He's, no, Paul said, please remove this. And he did it not once, not twice, but three times. It's okay to get on your face and beg God to heal and to comfort and to remove The source of pain. Number two. But if it doesn't go away, then ask God to teach you. Ask God to teach you. In verse nine, Paul says, and God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected when you are weak, when you acknowledge your weakness. Um, Interesting thing here is. Uh, you know, did Paul have another revelation? Did he hear a voice from God? Maybe because Paul kind of did that. Do you expect to hear a voice from God? My advice would be don't. Don't. You study the word of God, even very few people hear voices from God. That's not the norm in Scripture. It's the exception to the rule. But that doesn't mean God doesn't speak. God can plant thoughts in your mind. His spirit lives in you. So as you sit and pray with him and say, God, what do you want me to learn from this? Especially as you open the word of God and reflect on his voice. This is where God speaks most clearly. Doesn't stutter. You can study it. Listen to it. As you read the word and God speaks into your heart, he can say, you know, this is what you need to learn. This is what I want you to. This is what I want you to take away from this thorn in the flesh. So ask God to teach you to speak into your life through his word and through other people. As he, as, he, as he does in Scripture. Ravi Zacharias, one of my favorite authors, says this, and I think he's quoting C.S. Lewis, but both of them in different ways said this over time that pain is like God's megaphone to get our attention. You know, when God is trying to get our attention and we're not listening, we're not hearing, we're not listening, then God shouts to wake us up. And the shout is in the form of pain, the form of pain. So what do you do if God wants to teach you? Well, just a couple quick tips. Number one, ask God to remove it. Ask God to remove the pain, ask Him to teach you, but then I would say do what I call a life check. In other words, just step back in the midst of the pain, sit there in it and say, God, what do you teach me about my life? Let's, let's look at life. Let's ask questions like, is this the result of my sin? Because some pain is. Especially relational pain. A lot of times when I look at relational pain with somebody, you know, know, it's almost always mostly their fault. Okay, if I'm having pain from Becky, it's usually mostly her fault. Amen, guys. It's Father's Day. Can you give me that on Father's Day? Yeah. You think that's true? No, of course it's not true. Sometimes it's her fault. Sometimes it's my fault. Even if it's her fault. It's probably precipitated by something I did a week earlier or a day earlier. Eight years ago. <laughs> okay, the pain is increasing in the room, I can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. sometimes it's something I have done. And even though her reaction against me painfully perhaps is ungodly, uncalled for, whatever, at the same time I need to say, God, what did, I say, God, did I do anything to bring this on? Okay, reveal my heart. Is God disciplining me for something? Is he spanking my spiritual backside to get my attention? Is there something God wants me to learn? Is there something he's trying to teach me? That's the key. I don't want to just quote recent letters. I ran across another quote. This one's from a book in 1696. Now, that's an old book. I don't have the original version. But it's quoted, and here's what someone quoted in an email to me. From a book from 1696 written by Henry Bosch about pain, he said this. He said, sharp afflictions are to the soul as a soaking rain is to a house. We know that there are, uh, we know not that there are such holes in the roof until the showers come. And then we see it drop or drip down here and there. Perhaps we did not know that there were such unmortified cuts in our soul until the storms of affliction came and then we found unbelief. Then we found impatience. Then we found fear dropping or dripping down in many places. And that's a great, it's a great quote. He says, have you ever been through a storm? Have you ever been disturbed, irritated, faithless, fearful, or rebellious? Then consider that maybe God is using pain, using problems to show you where you got a leaky faith, show you what needs to grow, to show you where you're loving things of this world more than you should love them. So he takes them away, so that you get your affections focused back where they need to be on Christ and life and. You know, and then he can perhaps bless you again or not. But the reality is God uses pain to reveal the holes in the roof of our faith. Do a life check. That's what I mean by that. Do a reality check. Do a humility check. That's another one. You know, this passage, obviously, Paul says, look, it's because of the danger of becoming prideful that God lets pain into my life. So anytime pain comes into my life, I should step back and just say, God, did I need this because I'm just becoming a little too proud of me? It's easy. It's easy to fall into that when you're experiencing God's blessing. Third thing. Ask God to remove it. Ask God to teach you through it. Number three, trust God for his sustaining grace. Verse nine says that what I learned was my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Verse nine. See, what he's saying is my grace is sufficient. He's not talking about the grace of God that brings us salvation. He's not talking about the grace on the cross that we'll celebrate in communion in a minute. What he's talking about is God's sustaining Grace. It's a free gift from God that God sustains us, empowers us, gives us the strength to deal with whatever it is we're going through. That's what I mean by sustaining grace. And it's only as it gets tested that it gets displayed. And that leads to the fourth thing. And that is that as you trust God through it, the ultimate goal is to find joy in it. Because it helps you display His sustaining power. In other words, it helps those around you in your life see the sustaining power of God. See the presence of God. See that your faith is not just play in church. That your faith is not just empty religion. That your faith is real because it's tested. If the world never sees it tested, then they never know if it's real. Today we wanted to... Uh, Change up the way we end the message a little bit by uh, inviting a couple friends from the church up on stage with me. I want to ask Bill and Melinda Buchanan to join me briefly and just take a few minutes because we thought it would be good to hear from uh, someone who's been going through kind of a thorn in the flesh experience um, and see what God has been teaching the Buchanans and what we can learn from that before we go into communion. So Bill and Melinda, Welcome, and thanks for, uh, thanks for being willing to just share with us. Give us a short version of your life first. Give us a little background for those that don't, don't know you
1: well. Sure. Um, so Melinda and I have been married about 24 years, a little over that. Uh, we have three boys, 21, 19, and 17. Uh, we moved to Encinitas uh, about 16 and a half years ago, and within about six months of checking out some churches, we landed here. So we've been here for 16 years. Um, about two years ago, God, uh, allowed two pretty major health challenges to come our way. Um, Andrew, our middle son was 17 at the time and he went in for what we expected to be a fairly routine knee surgery. Uh, a few hours into the surgery, the surgeon came out and advised us that she had inadvertently nicked the main artery wow. in his knee. So right here. And, um. That led to about two hours of him not getting blood flow to the lower half of his leg. Um, and what we thought was gonna be a day or two recovery in the hospital turned into nine days in the ICU to clear the blood clots in his leg and make sure that there was full function in that leg and a six month recovery. Uh, that was in April of 2011. And then in about July, um, Melinda began to notice some abdominal discomfort and indigestion symptoms, which would be normal for stressful times with your son. Um, But she went in to have the doctor check it out, and within just a few weeks, she was diagnosed with uh, stage 3C ovarian cancer. Um, In August, the first week of August, she had surgery to remove uh, seven tumors and two liters of fluid and... Um, after just a few weeks of recovery, then she started eight months of chemo treatment. Wow.
0: So when you hear this sermon and this passage today, this is uh, – talk to me a little bit, Melinda, about how this kind of helps you understand what you went through. How's, how's this applied to you?
2: Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is pain is hard, and I really didn't want any part of it. And I really wanted Andrew to just be okay, and I didn't want to have to see him suffer especially when I couldn't fix it. And I wanted no part of being uh, sick and bald and barfing and bald. weak. Bald is not bad. No? Yes, okay. sorry. Yes. No, no offense.
0: <laughs> Your husband looks pretty good. It's Father's Day, okay? He's very handsome. Love a bald guy. That's my motto today. But go on.
2: Um, yes, yeah, sorry. I couldn't embrace it. so um, Couldn't pass that. Yeah. Um, So it was hard, and yet God did meet us in the midst of that pain, and I think that's what we want to share is that God was there in the midst of our pain. Specifically with Andrew, uh, one way that God met me very, very um, personally was um, being in the midst of the um, ICU, listening to all the machines function and willing the blood to flow in his leg, God reminded me of a passage of scripture I'd read the week prior to his surgery from um, Luke 8 when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples and there was a storm brewing and Jesus was just sleeping and they were very afraid. And um, God reminded me of that story and reminded me that I did not need to be afraid because Jesus was in the boat with me in the midst of that storm and that he would calm the storm. And that just was a healing balm to my soul at that time. I I, I want to... read you something that I wrote in my journal um, at that time Uh, Andrew's in the hospital for the sixth day what we thought would be two days has had one mishap after another I am weary and I feel bad for Andrew God has encouraged me from Luke 8 when Jesus calms the storm he has assured me that he's in the boat with me that I don't need to be afraid of the storm. Today I'm asking him to calm the storm and bring us safely to the other side. He has encouraged me to not be discouraged, not to be afraid. I want to cling to that, but it feels very hard. Like my faith is weak. And and having weak faith was a continued thing that was difficult for me because I really, I wanted to be strong. I wanted to fight the cancer. I wanted to fight and be okay. And yet... The reality was, I was weak, and I, I didn't have, I couldn't fight it. There was nothing I could do in, um, in my control, and so God met me another time, um, early on, which in hindsight I'm thankful for, um, and just uh, I felt encouraged to be weak, and that it was okay to be weak. And reading this passage that you just spoke on, um, really ministered to me. I um, was. I had hoped that after my 24th chemo uh, treatment that I would be used to it and that I would have been able to walk in and be like, okay, here we go. Uh, But it was never easy, and um, I wanted to be strong enough. I didn't want to be afraid, but I was pretty much afraid every time I went for treatment. And um, one week I'd had an allergic reaction to one of my uh, treatments, so that following week I was really afraid it was going to happen again. And... um, I'll read you a journal entry when this passage that Dale just spoke on really ministered to me. Recognizing today that I'm afraid about treatment tomorrow, I feel a sense of freedom admitting my fear and resting in my weakness. I can't be strong enough. I can't figure out all the what ifs. I can't do this on my own. Second Corinthians 12:9 and 10 says, "My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness." Um, I won't read it all. Um, I don't know what it looks like to rest in this way. Weakness feels scary, so I fight to be strong. I even fight to be strong in the Lord. I feel like God's encouraging me to just give it up and let go of trying to be the good, strong Christian. I'm not resting in his power until I can rest in my weakness. And that was just a continual reminder that being weak is not a bad place to be. And that God can love me and be gracious to me when I let myself be weak. Yeah,
0: because yeah, you have a tendency to trust Him. As long as you think we're strong enough on our own, then why surrender and really ask Him to just do it? Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, what a great, what a great example. But it also, I love your honesty because it's not easy. Yeah. Not easy. As you move forward, uh, give us a little glimpse of how we can pray for you all, even as we think about moving forward. Um, Bill?
1: Yeah, well, one thing before we jump to that, I, I wanted to share one little thing that God oh, was teaching it. me. Sorry. It's Father's Day. Father's <laughs> Day. You're on. So, this is from uh, July 21st, 2011. So, this is before we actually had the formal diagnosis. With a lot of fears we were facing, wondering, is this cancer or is it not? And I just wrote, um, A fearful day today, Lord. Melinda. <clears throat> Melinda had her CT scan this morning and is pretty worked up. Comfort my bride, O Father. Give her your strength and protect her from the lies and accusations of the evil one. Thank you for the truth of your word and the hope you give me from it. I confess my irrational, self-centered thoughts and fears about my own future, especially if this is cancer from Sorry, you guys. So I went on to just write down uh, about four or five different verses that I wanted to get my mind thinking about so that I get my thoughts on his word rather than on my fears. And uh, Psalm 62 really encouraged me. uh, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He's my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And then the last verse I wrote down was the one you taught on this morning. Uh, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn away. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me.
0: I really appreciate you guys being willing to just just kind of sit and talk about it. It's a painful topic. I mean, it makes me hurt just hearing you kind of revisit some of these journal entries. And thanks so much for sharing that with us. I mean, God uses uses that. And it's encouragement to hear how it was through other Christians. It was through the body of Christ. It was through worship. It was through being in the Word that God delivered His encouragement to you. That it's okay to be weak. It's okay to be
2: with you. Yeah, and, and God did use his people to minister to us greatly and all of you to minister to us greatly in the midst of it. And it's still scary. And um, so we would appreciate your continued prayers. Our, our son Andrew is doing very well and has recovered with the exception of some gnarly-looking scars on his leg. Um, but um, I, I still um, am afraid that the cancer will come back. And it's not something that I feel like, whoop, I'm, I'm done, I'm over it. It's mm-hmm. still scary.
0: So it's kind of like a thorn in the flesh that you live with mm-hmm. and may live with the rest of your life. That yeah. uh, in weakness, we can be strong. Mm-hmm. Bill, final yeah, word? Just,
1: um, there's a verse in the first part of Second Corinthians. You're teaching from it right now. But this really jumped out to us right at the end of uh, the chemo treatment. And I want to thank everybody who prayed for us. Because you, I mean, literally, we were... You took care of us with over a hundred meals I counted during wow. the whole chemo treatment from this community of believers, doing our laundry, helping us navigate this whole thing. Um, but Paul says, you know obviously all the struggles he had. He wrote this to the Corinthians in uh, chapter one, second Corinthians. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. I would just translate instead of in the province of Asia in our health care challenges. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. And you, meaning the Corinthians he's writing to, are helping us by praying for us. Then people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. Yeah.
0: Would you thank them for coming and sharing?
2: Thank you.
0: Now before, um, before we leave, we'd like to ask you to just give us about five minutes. I want to ask the team to come and let me pray. We're going to serve the Lord's table and just end by focusing on what Christ did for us. On the cross. Because it's that sacrifice that really proves to us in tough times that there is a God who will care for us if you have a thorn in your flesh. Father God, thank you for the gift of your Son. We pause before leaving to uh, reflect on the bread that represents the sinless but sacrificed body of Jesus. As we hold it together and in a few minutes we'll partake together, uh, remind us of how deeply you love us. As we hold and pass this cup, Father, uh, may this juice remind us of the blood of Christ shed on the cross for us. No greater love has any man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Thank you for laying your life down for us. We share the Lord's table together now in Christ's name. Amen.